be with y'all this morning. Uh, it's a joy to be here. Um, like I said, I'm new to Alabama, uh, so it was great to have a warm welcome, a warm face in Sean. Uh, Cody was welcoming me earlier, so I'm really thankful for that. Uh, let me pray for us one more time, and then we will hop into God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, as Sean prayed earlier, help us. Help us to listen. Help us to learn. Help us to love. Help us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Is this the one? It's a question we often ask. Uh, Whether we're at a car dealership or looking for a home on Zillow, we're often looking for the right one. Uh, Sometimes, if we're honest, we look with more unrealistic expectations. Uh, You can think of that person who wants to find the one person they should marry. And of course, that person has five advanced degrees. They always stay in shape. They never complain. They make tons of money but have plenty of time for the family. They've memorized the book of Romans. They happen to like all the same food I do. And of course, they use every last drop of toothpaste in the tube before they dare reach for a new one. I'm not letting you into my marriage this morning. I'm just giving you hypotheticals. But we look for the one. And you know, this isn't always bad. Uh, So I'm new to Birmingham. I I guess the World Games are coming to Birmingham next year. Uh, We're going to be looking out for the one team that is going to win in racquetball or whatever games they play in the World Games. And these are lighter examples. But if we're honest, in our harder seasons of life, uh, we also look for the one, don't we? We're exhausted and think, is this the one vacation that'll finally give me a break? We're struggling to make ends meet, and we think, is this job the one that will finally provide for my needs? Friends, we all have something we're hoping for, something we're waiting on. And the moments of our anticipation are never more intense than when we've messed up. When we failed, when we look back at something we did or something we said and we ask ourselves, what have I done? It's in that moment we crave relief. And we start looking for the one thing that will give it to us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's really good to have you here. You might be wondering, why in the world should I listen to this sermon? My answer, outside of the general curiosity surrounding what we Christians understand to be the first murder in human history, is that I think you, like the rest of us, have things in your life you would look back on and think, why did I do that? What have I done? What do I do now that I've done it? Friend, you may have a different religion or no religion, but do you have regrets in your life? Do you feel as if you're lost, wandering, carrying your regrets, and you don't know where or how to drop them? Friend, what's the one thing you're looking to for hope? 
Turn to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. We're picking up the account of Adam and Eve, the first people whom God Almighty created, and the first people whom God Almighty judged. Adam and Eve, though they were the only creations made in God's likeness, though they lived in a perfect world, though they had the joy and privilege of being faithful and multiplying and filling this world, though Adam and Eve had all of this, they sinned. They rebelled against God. They had listened to God's enemy, Satan, who slithered into their garden and tempted them, and they gave in. And as a result, God judged them. And the whole world would change for the worse. Work would now be harsh. Relationships would now be difficult. Childbearing would now be painful. But there would come a day where it would all get better. I mentioned childbearing a moment ago. God had promised that a Savior would be born. And he would crush that tempter, that serpent's head. He'd make everything right. But before he came, we have Adam and Eve, exiled from God's garden, cut off from eternal life. Look at, look at verse 24 of chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, that big number is the chapter number. The little number is the verse. Genesis 3:24 says, God drove out the man, Adam, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the tree of life. So friends, this is where we pick it up. Adam and Eve would have looked at one another and asked, what have we done? And it's in this hopelessness that Adam and Eve would look for the one to come. I'm going to give you my outline for the sermon in a second, but really the first couple verses of chapter 4 frame the rest of the passage. Uh, They set up the question the rest of the passage will answer. They're like those yellow words at the beginning of Star Wars rolling backward and setting context. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It reads, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Friends, so many of us are familiar with this account, we forget that to read it correctly is to be glad when we first meet Cain. Adam and Eve would have been in the maternity ward, smiling, thinking, is this the one? Is this the man who would fulfill God's plan? Did you see that Eve said, I have, I, I, did you see that Eve didn't say, I've gotten a baby, but I've gotten a man? And God has been so good, he's given us another one, Abel. For Adam and Eve, life has been so bleak, it's looking so bright right now. They have to be thinking, surely God is still with us. That's why Eve says, look at verse 1, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Beloved, it's a reminder that unless, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Friends, God gives life, which means children are blessings from God. They are not burdens. They are burdensome at times. And all the parents said amen. 
But burdens are not what children are in their essence. Children are essentially gifts. Do you see them that way? Why? Why not? I I love in the beginning of your bulletin right here. It's preaching that same message. Children are gifts. Do you see them that way? I'm going to leave you with that question because verses 1 and 2, our context, are, are about more than appreciating children. The drama is whether one of these boys, Cain being first, is the one. This is the big question of the passage. So if you're taking notes, this is the question to write down. Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan to crush that serpent, to make things right? Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Our passage this morning has three answers for us. Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Answer number one. No. Because he is very angry. Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Answer number one, no. Because he is very angry. We'll see this in verses 3 through 7. Follow along as I read. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Friends, we leave the maternity ward. The boys have grown and we're now in a sanctuary of sorts. The Garden of Eden is really God's temple. Adam and Eve and family are exiled from it. But nonetheless, we're in a place of worship. A place where offerings are brought to God. And these are the first offerings we see in Scripture. We know that from verse 2 that Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And so Cain brings his offering from the ground to God, and Abel brings from the flock, as verse 4 says. And God regarded Abel's offering. Now, our passage doesn't explicitly say why God regarded Abel's offering, and maybe you've heard various explanations as to why God did so. I think the best explanation is the Bible's. So, friends, this passage comes in the context of an entire book. And we want the Bible to help us interpret the Bible. So we can speculate about whether Cain's offering of vegetables was less pleasing than Abel's offering of animals and how this relates to the coming Levitical system. Or we could look at those verses Deanna read for us earlier. Hebrews 11.4, which says Abel offered his sacrifice to God by faith, implying that Cain did not. We could read 1 John 3.12, which says Cain's works were evil and Abel's were righteous. No doubt, given Abel's righteousness, maybe that's why he offers the best he has. There are some details in our passage that tip us off to that. 
You can look at verse 4, which talks about the firstborn of Abel's flock and the fat portions. But it wasn't ultimately that Abel put a nice piece of steak before God. It was that his heart was right before God. Friends, Brother Michael prayed about this earlier. God sees your heart, your motivations, your affections, your thoughts, your desires. God sees them all with perfect clarity. So you you can't just hide behind an offering. You can't just live like Cain Monday through Saturday and casually show up on Sunday expecting God to regard you as able. Uh, I love how one pastor put it. He said, a weekend of worship does not wash away a week of wickedness. No, friends, God sees you, the real you. And how we respond when we're exposed reveals the real us. And the real Cain, did you see it in verse 5? Was very angry. Not just angry. He was good and angry. Better yet, wicked and angry. The irony would be funny except for the fact that it's not. Cain is mad at God for his own sin. Just like his dad, Cain is looking to dodge and deflect blame. In chapter 3, Adam was like, God, this, this woman you dumped on me, she's why I sinned. And like father, like son, Cain, because of his own sin, starts brooding at other people. He effectively says, God, you're the problem. How does Proverbs 19 put it? When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. How will the Lord respond to Cain? Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Friends, God's questions are as profound as they are simple. Like a father pleading with his son, he's like, "Why, Why are you angry? Beloved, I wonder if you're here mad at God this morning. Why? God doesn't just inquire. He goes on to exhort Cain. He says in verse 7, do well and you'll be accepted. Now, this isn't works righteousness because we know Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. And faith leads to righteous and repentant living. God goes on in verse 7 to warn Cain about the sinister and subtle power of sin. It is crouching at your door. It's like an animal. It wants to devour you. And though I'm new, I'm new to town, even the Birmingham Zoo understands this point. So this, this, a couple of weekends ago, uh, my wife Megan went on a girl's trip to Florida. Uh, so I was at home with our three small children. And I can assure you, the Lord really put my theology of children as a gift to the test. And I do believe my kids are a gift. Anyway, Megan is gone uh, out of town, so I took my kids to the Birmingham Zoo. And we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Part of what made it so fun 
was that there was a safe distance between us and the animals. So you go to the paddock where the lions are, you know, prowling around, doing their thing, and it's fun to see them because there's like 50 feet between us and the lions. There's a glass wall, a strong wall between us and the lions, right? The Birmingham Zoo does not let you come up and pet the lions. You don't get to come up and be like, oh, this one's so cute and fluffy. I'm going to name you Mufasa. (laughs) Friends, we are not Adam trying to frolic with the beasts before the fall. And we laugh. But I fear this is exactly what we, in our foolishness, do with our sins sometimes. We coddle it. Accommodate it. We say, oh, it's just a little pride. Oh, it's just a little envy. It's just a little lust. Friends, we could keep listing sins, but the point is clear. Your sin is not Mufasa. It is Scar plotting and planning to take you down. It wants to be king. That's why there will be this conflict of wills within you. This wording about sin's desire being contrary is the same as Genesis 3.16, where God talks about the division that will now take place. In chapter 3, verse 16, God says to Eve, Now that you've sinned, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. But I don't want us to focus on Eve. I want us to focus on God. And how he gives Cain, the man of the hour, a second chance. Remember, he warns and exhorts him. How will Cain respond? We should assume with repentance. God has already said the punishment for sin is death. Cain gets a second shot. Will he turn things around? Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Answer number two, no, because he is a murderer. Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Answer number two, no, because he is a murderer. This point will cover verses 8 through 12. And as we begin, I'm actually going to just read verse 8 for us because it merits its own meditation. Uh, But this will all be in point two. Follow along as I read. Chapter 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Beloved, this is the first murder in human history. The ungodly anger resident in Cain's heart only had to find expression by Cain's hands. And so Cain, that worker of the ground, violently puts his brother into the ground by slaying him. Friends, do you see what happens when you don't rule over your anger and envy? Cain should have ruled over these passions, as God had said in verse 7, but these sins ruled him. And look what happened. 
Isn't Cain a picture of what James said? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James goes on to say, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Friends, you want to know why God talks so much in Scripture about love, unity, contentment, humility within the church? It's because this is what happens when vices are left unchecked. This murder was not disconnected from Cain's anger or envy. No, those passions were the sparks that turned into a forest fire of sin. And the depth of depravity we see here, it ought to give us more appreciation for how severely God responded to Adam and Eve's sin. After all, it's easy to read Genesis 3 where we see the first sin, Eve and Adam taking the fruit and God judging them and the rest of creation. And in our naivete, we can think God is kind of overreacting to sin. After all, Adam and Eve, all Adam and Eve did was take a piece of fruit, right? But friends, remember, as one preacher said, that the gravity of our sin lies not so much in the sin committed, but in the greatness of the one sinned against. And that's all true. But now seeing here in Genesis 4 how ugly sin can get and how quickly it can get so ugly, do you not appreciate God's response to Adam and Eve a bit more? God knew what was coming down the pike when that fruit was plucked. Humanity's morality wasn't improving. It was rapidly falling. So if you think, why does God make such a big deal about anger or envy? All you are showing is your moral short-sightedness. And Cain showed his. He couldn't come after God, so he went after the next best thing. His image. His brother who bore God's image. Remember, all people, including Cain, are made in God's likeness. Cain's heart was raging against the Lord, and so it raged against the Lord's image bearer. Brothers and sisters, Cain raged against Abel because he was jealous, yes, but also, I think, because righteous Abel looked a whole lot like his heavenly father. There are dozens of sermons that could come out of verse 8, but we need to press on. We're still in point 2. We've reached the climax of our passage. Cain has murdered his brother. How would the Lord respond? If we're reading this right, according to the context, it would make sense for God to say, Cain, drop dead. Again, he said clearly in the preceding chapter that the punishment for sin is death. He would go on in further chapters, God, to say an eye for an eye, a life for a life. How would God confront Cain. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Friends, in his mercy, God doesn't immediately strike Cain down. But that doesn't mean God won't punish him. Friends, God doesn't only give life, he values life. And so he confronts Cain with another simple question. Where is Abel, your brother? If you're familiar with chapter 3, you'll hear how chapter 4 echoes chapter 3. God confronts Adam in chapter 3, verse 9, asking, where are you? And to Adam's son in chapter 4, verse 9, he sounds similar. Where is he? It's not that God doesn't know. It's precisely because he he knows that he asks. He's inviting Cain to confession. Come tell me. Earlier in the introduction, I talked about if you are lost, wandering, carrying regrets, and what do you do with them? Friends, confess them. Run to God. I'm a pastor. I've done things in my life I am not proud of. If they were on that screen, I'd be mortified for you to see them. What should I do? Carry them around? No, friends, drop them at God's feet. But is that what Cain does? How does Cain respond? Verse 9, Cain answers God's question saying, I do not know. Friends, our mouths can commit great evil with few words. Watch your mouth. Be careful with your words. After all, Cain's first words in this passage have been lies. He clearly deceived Abel to lead him into the field, and he blatantly lies to God. Do you see how sin is just piling up in our passage? It's like compound interest in depravity, anger, self-righteousness, envy, deception, murder, lying. Friends, we got to see that this battle between Cain and Abel, or better yet, Cain's assault on Abel, is the fulfilling of Genesis 3.15. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. I talked about it in my introduction, but let me just read it. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve have sinned. God is issuing curses that will set the trajectory for human history. And he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there will be this conflict between the seed, the offspring, the family of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And we see this play out time and time again in Scripture. Pharaoh, who wears a crown with a snake on it, versus Israel. Goliath versus David. This is why David lops off Goliath's head. He shall bruise your head. The Pharisees, that brood of vipers, Verse Jesus, Cain, verse Abel. Thinking of Jesus for a second, it's the seed of the servant which helps us understand passages like John eight forty four, where Jesus tells those opposing him, you are of your father, the devil, 
And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And friends, Cain, tragically, is looking a lot like his dad, the devil, lying, murdering, lying some more, mouthing off some more. I say mouthing off because after he lies, Cain continues responding to God with this notorious question. He says in verse 9, I don't know where Abel is. Am I my brother's keeper? Friends, this is what sin does. It turns us inward. Sin makes us say, me first and me only. But beloved, we were made in the image of a triune God. A God who is one in three. So it made sense when God made Adam that he said it is not good for him to be alone. And so he made others. Brothers and sisters, we never image God more than when we are loving others. And we never image him less than when we are hating them. And to bring this principle to the church for a minute, I know we've been in Genesis 4, we've been in the maternity ward, we went to the sanctuary, now we're in the field. But just to make this clear, brothers and sisters, the answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question in the church is yes. You know, Cody helps keep Chancellor. Chancellor helps keep Sean. You help keep each other. This is what your church covenant is for. So I was looking around your building earlier, saw the church covenant in that Sunday school room. In that covenant, among other things, you promise one another that you will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And that is exactly what Cain didn't do. Friends, Cain shows us where radical individualism leads to envy, to violence, to insatiable, selfish ambition. But in the church, we see a more excellent way. Love. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Laying down yourself for the sake of others. If you're here and you've been living for yourself, I promise you, you will know wonders if you join a healthy church because churches are not just collections of individuals. We are one family. And if you know brokenness in your family on earth, I can relate. I had a hard relationship with my dad and he with the rest of my family. But in the church... I've gotten new dads. Friends, like Adam and Eve, you might have had high hopes for your family. Parents with older kids, I, I think of you. Uh, some of you might often reminisce on the maternity ward days. The days when your kids were itty-bitty and, in a sense, innocent. And now they've grown divided, estranged, 
your family is feuding and you're wondering where it all went wrong. Brothers and sisters, I I don't know why your family is the way it is, but I know that in the church, even the concept of family is redeemed. We need to keep going. Verse 10, the Lord responds to Cain's big sin and big mouth saying, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And here we see one of the most comforting facts. God's ears are attuned to the suffering of his people. There is no static on that airwave. He sees clearly. He hears clearly. Doesn't mean bad things won't happen to his people, but he sees. He hears. If you just read scripture, you will see that our God is a hearing God. In Exodus, didn't... God tell Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Or again in James, he talks about how the Lord said of oppressed field workers, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. If you're here this morning, friend, thinking God is deaf, think again. He hears. And he judges. That's what happens to Cain in verses 11 and 12. Now this is interesting. God curses Cain from the ground in verse 11. Uh, In the Hebrew, that wording for Cain's curse here parallels the curse put on the serpent in chapter 3, verse 14. This parallel makes sense, right? Again, like father, the devil. Like son, Cain. What's more, God goes on to say the ground will no longer yield for Cain. Now, we know from the previous chapter, God has cursed the ground already. So I'm not sure if Cain's curse in verse 12 is a mere repetition or doubling down. Like, you thought work was hard before, Cain? Just wait. But I think whatever this curse is, it's specific to Cain. Uh, Cain does not represent us federally before God like Adam did. And if you're wondering what it means for Adam... To represent us federally, that is a great question for you to ask someone after church. But it's enough to say for now, Cain's punishment, this curse on the ground, was specific to him. And remember, Cain was a worker of the ground. So now his job, the very thing that sustained him in an earthly sense, the ground would be against him. The earth itself would be a monument to Abel. Don't miss the irony. Cain tried to get rid of Abel. And now, in a sense, his brother is everywhere. This last punishment, briefly, in verse 12, that Cain will be a fugitive and a wanderer is painfully ironic. God says, you want to be on your own? Okay. Away from me. Go. Wander. How will Cain respond? Will he repent at long last? Will will he become the man his parents hoped he'd be? Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Answer number three, no. Because he himself is in need of mercy. Is Cain the man who will fulfill God's plan? Answer number three, no. No. Because he himself 
is in need of mercy. This point will be our last, and we'll cover verses 13 through 16. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 13. The Lord has cursed Cain and has cursed Cain, and Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Let's pause there. You might be wondering, uh, who is Cain worried about killing him? Isn't it just him, Adam, and Eve on the planet? Or their unnamed characters? This is a fine question. Uh, my best reading is that Cain is familiar with the promise of Genesis 3.15. Uh, he knows he's not the one to come. Adam's not the guy, and he's murdered the only other candidate. So I think he knows future generations are coming, and when you're the only murderer on the planet, they may very well be coming after you for revenge. Before he talks about people killing him, Cain cries out in verses 13 and 14 that his punishment is too great to bear and that he'll be driven from the Lord's face. Cain's life is like the anti-beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And driven from his face, Cain was anything but pure in heart. Which is why I'm not confident that Cain's response, his plea in verses 13 and 14, is godly sorrow. And given how the rest of Scripture comments on him, I'm not sure Cain's response is repentance or self-pity. But more than Cain's response, I want us to see God's response. Verse 15, Cain says, people will kill me. Then the Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Eastward movement in the Bible is a depiction of God's judgment. So you'll remember Adam was driven out of Eden to the east. Later on in Scripture, when God's people are driven out uh, of their nation to Babylon, that's in the east. So Cain will know God's judgment. But Cain will also know God's mercy. Did you see that mercy in verse 15? God promises to protect Cain from the very sin he committed against God and his brother. It is so evident from the testimony of Scripture that Cain needed mercy. And you know what? So do you. You see, it's easy to sit in judgment of Cain's sin. As if we're a mere, more righteous observer of Cain's account. But let me read for you something the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or what about 1 John three ten? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Friends, before we trust in Jesus, we are more like Cain than we care to admit. We've been angry. We've been jealous. We've been bitter. We've lied. And we have not practiced righteousness. And so we deserve God's judgment. We're under his wrath, headed to hell, where we will experience it forever. By Cain, our punishment is just, and it is indeed greater than we can bear. And that should cause us all to look for one to come and give us relief from bearing this judgment. And if you're looking for that relief, I got good news for you. There is hope for you. Because there was, in fact, another man who came. Born of a woman. A good shepherd, even better than Abel. He offered to God his best because he offered to God himself. He was not very angry. No, he is gentle and lowly of heart. He is not a murderer, but rather he willingly lays down his life for the sheep. And he was, in fact, murdered, crucified even on a Roman cross, And there he bore the sins of his people. You see, Cain bore the mark of his sin as he was cursed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus bore the marks of our sin. It's fitting that that the scriptures say, Cursed is the one who is hanged on a tree. And yet though he was perfect and died on a criminal's cross, the Lord regarded Jesus' offering. And we know this because the blood of this man did not just cry from the ground. His body got up out of the ground three days later. Showing that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And he now offers mercy to the worst of us if we would turn from our sins and trust in him. Friends, kids, Jesus said, whoever Even if you are as sinful as Cain, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come. I love this. The Lord didn't just say, the Lord didn't just help. You remember Eve said, I got a man with the help of the Lord. But the Lord didn't just help. He came down from heaven, not to do my own will, Jesus says in John 6, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Friends, if you come to Jesus, he will bring you into his family. You will be his sister, his brother. And Jesus is happy and strong enough to be his brother's keeper. And he will bring you to see God's face. Brothers and sisters, Cain is not the man to fulfill God's plan. We don't need a man who himself is in need of mercy, we need a man who is himself full of mercy. We need a man who can give mercy. And that man is the man in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one you're looking for this morning. You know, this whole thing about Jesus being the one Scripture is about and the one Scripture anticipates, it's not a creative angle on the story. 
It is the story. Flip over to Genesis 5.28. I just want you to see this beautiful preview. Genesis 5.28. There was a man named Lamech, and he had a son named Noah. And look at what Lamech says about Noah. Genesis 5.28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this one, this one shall bring us relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. But of course, Noah, like Cain, wasn't the man who would provide that relief ultimately. Another one would have to come and bring relief from the work and the painful toil of our hands. So imagine what it must have sounded like when Jesus showed up on the scene saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know those of us here who have been searching for the one to come. And we are so glad he, the Lord Jesus, came and found us. Oh, Father, we look forward to him coming again, that we might know relief from our toil fully and finally. Until then, oh, Lord, keep us. If you didn't keep us, we wouldn't be kept. Keep us near the cross. Help us not to look to ourselves or one another, but to the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.